This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you're listening to episode 42. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review the Planet Microcap podcast on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Thank you to everyone who listened to my recent interview with Sanjay Bakshi, and thank you to all of my new subscribers. I'd like to welcome all new and returning listeners and look forward to sharing with you more informational and educational interviews covering the microcap space exclusively. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Len Hausler, founder and portfolio manager at Opus Capital Management. I reached out to his firm to discuss their microcap value strategy that uses more of a quantitative approach. I've yet to do an interview with someone that employs this strategy, and I was quite curious as to how it all works. Also, I'm very excited to announce that Len will be joining us in Las Vegas at the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 26th through 28th, where he'll be speaking on the Microcap Institutional Investor Panel. He'll be joined by Bill Naskovitz from Heartland Advisors, Ralph Garcia from Echelon Wealth Partners, and the panel is moderated by Jason Paltrowitz from OTC Markets, and they all discuss their unique approaches to microcap investing. There's still time to register. Simply send us an email at info at snnwire.com and we will send you a link to register. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 42 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Len Hausler. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey everybody, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. I'd like to take this moment to invite you to join me and some of the guests you may have heard on this podcast to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 26th through April 28th, 2017, at none other than the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you'll get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with company management of undiscovered and well-known microcap companies. There are a lot of surprises in store, and you're not going to want to miss it. So join us at the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 26th through April 28th at the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information, go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com and register now to reserve your spot. See you in Vegas. For this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I have Len Hausler on the program. He is the founder and portfolio manager at Opus Capital Management. Len, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Thanks, Robert. It's great to be here. 
It's great to have you on. Um, and uh, as we normally do when we get started on the podcast, what is your background? Well, it's, it was a long and winding road to get to where I am right now. Uh, basically, I'm a CPA and a CFA, uh, but I started off by working for the uh, Arthur Anderson, which is no more, of course, <clears throat> but uh, I worked there for a year, and then uh, I taught accounting for a couple years at the University of Cincinnati. And from there, I went to the uh, Mead Corporation, where I uh, did all the analysis work for the bigwigs up there. And it was at that point in time that I was very interested in investments. But whenever the investments had an opening, uh, I wasn't available and vice versa. So it was interesting that uh, they came to me and I had been promoted uh, about three or four times in the space of three years there. They offered me a uh, salary increase for a better boss in a large office overlooking the river. And I said, let me think about it over the weekend. And I came back and I said, no, and in fact, I'm going to be quitting because I want to be working in investments. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that for everybody, by the way. But uh, that got me going uh, to go after my passion, which was investment. So I finally did land a job at uh, Cincinnati Bell and uh, at a pay cut and in a cubicle, not near any windows, actually. And uh, so that's, I worked my way up from there. I actually became the assistant treasurer and director of investments at Cincinnati Bell. So I wrote the investment policy statements, hired and fired managers and the like. And uh, it was sort of interesting how we came to sort of start investing money. I was in power to hire and fire managers, but there was one manager who had, shall we say, an in with the chairman, and I wasn't allowed to fire that particular manager. So I sort of stormed into my boss's office and said, these guys are so bad, we could do it better ourselves. So I went in there whining, and he looked at me, and calmly said, well, maybe we should consider managing money internally. So that's how it all started. I uh, did, uh, for the next two and a half years, I did research on what had worked well over long periods of time. We spent a boatload of money uh, back testing it, uh, which was Vestec. And Vestec came back and said it was the most uh, robust quantitative screen that they had ever seen all set to uh, start investing money for Cincinnati Bell. We got a new CFO who didn't want to do it. So we didn't do it, but it stuck in my craw for two years. So basically, uh, after two years, we ended up, my wife and I ended up uh, quitting to start Opus Capital. And we had zero assets under management. So uh, quite a different path than, say, somebody leaving in another investment firm and bringing money with them or leaving a bank or being a broker. Uh, we came from the plan sponsor side, and that, that was how Opus started. And and what was your initial impetus in, into, into why you're so passionate about investments? What, what about it got you, you know, all, all jazzed up and uh, willing to quit that job? <laughs> Well, it's, it's just fascinating because there's, there's no right or wrong answers until after the fact, right? 
So it's all very gray, and I like that. I, I like the idea that you have to make a decision based on limited information. So, and it's you against them, and uh, may the smartest person win kind of thing. So it's, it's very much of a competitive kind of thing. So, and you get graded every hour, every day, so you know how you're doing. So you can be on top of the world, and you can uh, be a slug the very next day. So I find that fascinating. And so for you, risk and, and that idea of competitiveness, that's always been kind of crucial to, to why you wanted to get into the investment sphere. I mean, that definitely lends itself to microcaps, that's for sure. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I'm sure when it comes to looking at microcaps, that actually lends itself well to how you want to approach this, this space in the market, wouldn't you say? Right. It's... it's uh for us here at Opus, uh, and the way I actually invested or how I researched it these many years ago, it's all about it trying to increase your odds. So you want to make sure that you're picking from a better universe and making sure you have a, the best, port, best portfolio uh, put together for risk control and the like. But again, it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit like gambling in the sense that you're always trying to have the odds in your favor. So you're trying to be the casino this time as opposed to the better. Mm-hmm. You want those odds uh, in your favor when you're out there picking. Mm-hmm. So you, you talked a little bit about um, you know, when and why you started uh, the firm itself. When did you start the, uh, your microcap value fund? You know, when did that come about in the uh, company cycle? Well, that was an interesting story in and of itself. Uh, we had a consultant who, and we've, of course, been doing this for over 20 years now. So, and our flagship small cap value product has been around that long. And we recently um, started a couple products, one of them being the microcap. So we had a consultant who about five or six years ago approached us and said, we really like the flagship but we would like you to do a microcap product for us, but we would like it to be very concentrated, 20 to 30 issues. So I immediately said, no, no, we don't want to do that. Uh, And for the reasons that you hear a lot of money managers don't want to do it, uh, in the microcap arena, number one, analysts are very expensive and you have very limited capacity in the, in the microcap arena if you are fair about it. I mean, I know there are managers out there who are running uh, $6 billion in microcap. I'm not going to mention any names, but um, that doesn't seem like you're going to be able to add value when you start going out that far. So our initial thought was, are you crazy? No, we don't want to do that, especially with it being concentrated. You know, our capacity is going to be even further limited. So we said no. Then they came back six months later and said, you know, we really would like you guys to do this. And I said, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And finally, they came back like the third time and said, would you, would you want to, we would really love for you guys to do it. Would, would you do it? <sighs> okay, let me talk to myself. So we went back and we got everybody to agree that they would be willing to do this in addition to doing their other work because that was going to be the only way that it was going to work for anybody from a monetary point of view. And everybody agreed with that. 
And so what we did, we started down two separate paths. We started down a quantitative path and the, uh, the, the you know, individual to concentrate portfolio at the same time. So we started them somewhat concurrently. The quantitative approach was meant to be the guide for picking uh, from the quantitative, what, it was, what the quantitative screens were spitting out. And then from that, we were going to pick the 20 to 30 names that went into the portfolio. So in a sense, we are agnostic in the sense of uh, we can see in this universe, which is very, um, <clears throat> you know, what do you want to call it? Uh, it's fertile ground for both quantitative approaches and fundamental approaches uh, in our point of view, because it's there are just the, the stocks inside these universes are so volatile. There's almost no information available on them. And what little there is, uh, you almost have to take with a grain of salt. So fast forward, uh, both of them were doing very well. So both the concentrated portfolio and the quantitative portfolio. And when were they, they started real quick, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, 2014. Gotcha. Okay. And the uh, concentrated one was a little bit late. What was it? October 2014? Something like that. And the quantitative started a little bit earlier. Uh, we're coming up on our three-year anniversary on the quantitative, and it's not all quantitative, as you'll see. But having said that, okay, fast forward. We assigned three analysts to mostly work on that, the uh, concentrated portfolio, and they came to us and said, you know, we really like this. We want to do, we only want to do this. And it was like, well, guys, we said that this wouldn't work, so there's, we're not going to be able to afford afford to pay you the salaries you become accustomed to <laughs> with the revenue we're going to be able to bring. Uh, so we, but they said that they wanted to take a shot at it. So we said, all right, uh, we'll let you guys go off on your own. And they actually have done that now. So now there is a uh, sort of an opus originated kind of concentrated portfolio out there now. But we uh, kept the quantitative because we can make that work from a monetary point of view. Mm -hmm. So that's the one that we are currently have. And actually, both have worked very, very well. Uh, the guys have done a good job uh, since they left us. We haven't been keeping track. But I will say that the quantitative was actually beating them uh, when uh, at the end of last year. So for what it's worth. Okay, so so let's let's hone in on the quantitative because that's – that's Opus's specialty. That's the one you guys are really focused on right now. In yeah. microcap. In yes. microcap, right. The other products, it's a combination of uh, quantitative and a lot of effort in fundamental. So then, what is so then? What are some of the core um, investment metrics that you look for from a quantitative perspective for the microcap fund? Well, we've had quite a bit of experience. We've, as you know, I just described. Uh, how I came into it, where did three to four years of work on what had worked well, and now we've been doing going on 21 years of uh, both quantitative screens, how they're working anecdotally, if we did this better. So we've had all this almost 25 years of experience now of which fundamental factors work the best. So in terms of how we do it in microcap, the first thing that we look for and this is all based on uh, what has worked well in the past. So, again, if you look at studies for microcap, you'll see that 
uh, lower valuation tends to work, and also um, uh, momentum tends to work. And we've got a couple of our own uh, specialties that we fill in there too. So the first thing we do is that uh, we're making sure that we have a valid universe. So we are looking for companies that are between 50 million and 750 million in market cap. So that's the first cut. We also uh, like them to be domiciled in the US or Canada. Uh, and we also throw in some of the offshore things like Bermuda. We do that because if you didn't do that, you wouldn't get the insurance companies. That's all, that's right. where they're. Uh, we also want to make sure that we have proper liquidity. Uh, we believe that this, uh, we could run maybe between 250 to 300 million in this. So we require each stock to have at least $110,000 worth of liquidity on, liquidity on a daily basis. And we do uh, want to make sure it's at least $2 or more in terms of share price. And I know there's other people who go down to a dollar or what have you, but uh, we've sort of arbitrarily picked $2. So the first thing we do is we look for the lowest 40th percentile in terms of trailing P.E. So that be, does become important because uh, you have to have an E to have a P.E. in our opinion. So uh, we have nothing against people who are buying companies that have uh, negative earnings. There's many ways to skin a cat. Uh, we don't have the only way to uh, pick good stocks, but that, that's just our, that's our first cut. Of that, the lowest 15th percentile we allow to come through free and clear. So that'll go on to the next uh, step, if you will. So for those other ones from the 16th through the 40th percentile, we are looking to eliminate those companies that uh, we don't think will add value. So we're looking to, for, to eliminate those that have the highest leverage. And that's adjusted for whether you're a utility or a different industry or something along those lines. So we're we're dumping the uh, highest quintile leverage. We're looking to get rid of the ones that uh, have negative cash flows. We're also looking for uh, the company that has the least amount of growth, so uh, earnings growth year over year. So the lowest quintile there gets thrown out. And finally, the lowest quintile in terms of momentum gets thrown out also, so those that have the poorest momentum. So when all is said and done, that gets rid of uh, an enormous amount of companies, and that's 200, 250 to 300 companies that are left at that point in time. So at this point, we feel like we've got companies that have uh, they have good valuation, and we've gotten rid of a lot of the ones that uh, we think don't add value over time. So again, we've got it down to two, 250 to 300. Now, at that point, we switch to only picking the ones that we think are have good relative characteristics. So uh, it's a combination of three things. It's valuation, so 50% on valuation, 40% uh, on momentum. And these are all backed up with stats. So if you look at the stats, you'll see that the difference between the lowest valuation stocks and the highest valuation stocks in microcap there's a big chasm with the cheapest stocks being the best. That's why we emphasize valuation. And same same exact pattern on momentum. So again, that's why we have 40% of momentum. And as an aside, I, I, I would probably want to talk about that momentum piece a little bit more. The reason we go into momentum is because there aren't any analysts out there, right? So, uh, or there's very limited, or those that are out there are probably lying about it. So, 
And anyway, and the uh, other 10% uh, is ROE. So we're looking for the highest ROE. And again, this isn't one size fits all either. So for uh, financials, we have certain valuations that we use. So we'll use PE, but we'll also use price to tangible book and dividend yield. Uh, on non-financials, uh, we would be more looking at, again, PE. We would look at price to book, uh, EV to EBITDA, and also uh, free cash flow yield. So again, it's all based on research that we've had over the last 20 years. So you can't use one factor does not serve all. So you can't use the same factors for a bank that you could use for a manufacturing company. Mm-hmm. And so we've adjusted for that. So again, what we do is that we rank those uh, from you know one to 300 or whatever it turns out to be. And from there, we're going to be picking 120 stocks to put in the, into the portfolio. Now, uh, we would, again, that's adjusted for portfolio constraints. So again, we don't want to be, become a sector fund. So we only put in uh, 25% or whatever the sector weighting is in the ben- benchmark that we're measuring ourselves against, which happens to be, for us, the Russell microcap value. Uh, and again, we would never allow any more than 15% in any one uh, industry and only 1.5% in any one stock. So again, we want the 120 stocks because we don't want any clients to not sleep well at night because they read some story about one stock in their portfolio. So on average, it's 0.8 in the portfolio. So even if it blew up, at best, you lose 40 basis points if it went down 50%. So that's very important because what we're trying to do is to have a portfolio of 120 stocks that have characteristics that we know over long periods of time have managed to outperform the benchmark. Mm-hmm. So again, that's how we do it. And you would think we would just take the top 120, but it's not that simple. Uh, and we, uh, we are not comfortable just letting some computer uh, put a stock into some client's portfolio. So at that point, for those that are looking to go in the portfolio, we print off a uh, tear sheet that we've developed uh, internally that has literally thousands of numbers on it that we find important about stocks. So it has a progression of what the sales have been, what the earnings have been, and just ROEs, ROAs, uh, PEs, all of that good stuff, all on one very large sheet. And what we're looking to do is to eliminate those companies where it's obvious that, oh, that earnings is is not right. You can tell by looking at the sheet or basically it gives us an insight as to if we should do a little bit more research before we put that into the portfolio. So we do have a live person looking at that and it eliminates 20 to 30 percent of those names. Mm -hmm. So, again, when all is said and done, we end up with a portfolio of 120 and then we refresh it constantly. So in this case, in this particular uh, product, we would be refreshing it twice a quarter. So once it would be at the end of earnings season so that we have the freshest data possible. And then what we would do is about mm, six weeks later, we do it again to catch those companies like retail companies that have a different year end than others. So we'll catch those that have reported at a different time. So we're constantly refreshing that portfolio, and we think that's important. So we're looking at the names at the top of the screen and constantly looking to put those in there. 
And so we have very disciplined cell rules, and the whole gist of the cell rules is to allow the winners to run and the losers to uh, get them out of the portfolio. So again, uh, we've seen that time and time again. The losers can hang on and keep going down, and the winners keep going up. So we want to get rid of the losers early. So uh, again, the cell rules, uh, it, it's a very long list. It's like uh, and we don't really have time to go all, into all of that, but I will say that what we do first is look at the portfolio. So anything that uh, has been a takeout or something like that, we get rid of it because we've already uh, gotten the, the profit out of there. Mm -hmm. Then we look at things that uh, if they started at 0.8 and now they're at one and a half, uh, and they're still on the screen, we're going to uh, cut them back, okay, to a normal holding. Uh, anything that is uh, from a portfolio kind of thing, put us over our sector weightings, we'll cut that back. Then at that point, we will go after the losers. Anything that is underperformed by 15% 15 15 or so versus the benchmark, uh, off with their heads. And then and only then will we start trimming some of the ones that have outperformed in the portfolio. And again, we go through a series of those, and all of them are meant to go ahead and get rid of the ones that have are either uh, done so well that they're screwing up our asset allocation or that they're losers and we want to get rid of them and get fresh blood in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, we target 100% turnover, which is about average or actually below average for this space. So we have a lot to unpack here. And um, and the the I'd say the main thing that stuck out to me that I'm not I think maybe some of our audience would probably like a better understanding because I know we have a lot of people who listen who are more on the qualitative side. Um, yes. And and I did and I did do an interview. And by um, the way, that works. That works also. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and and I actually I did an interview um, uh, way back or or last year uh, with an individual investor who talked about. Uh, the advantages of using quantitative analysis and how it is a uh, a, a great method uh, if you want to potentially find some uh, some winners in microcaps. But one thing I wanted to cover with you because I wanted your perspective on this, and you touched on it a little bit already, and that's this idea of momentum. You know what what does that really mean? You know, can you can you define it and then maybe show an example and how how it's applied? Well, the momentum that we use is the 30-day uh, uh, change in the 200-day moving average. Okay, so that's the one that we found that is the most illustrative of whether that's going to continue or not. But I'm glad you asked that question because in our other uh, screens, if you will, that we use on our flagship and in our, on our dividend product, which has a fundamental basis and quantitative, we actually used analysts, uh, not that we believe what they're saying sometimes, but we do notice that stock prices react to how analysts, uh, to the expectations that analysts have. And historically, so let's just think about this for a second. So let's just say an analyst thinks that a company is going to come in at a dollar for the next quarter, but it comes in at a dollar twenty. So that would be an earning surprise, right? So again, what typically happens is that the stock reacts positively to that unless they're guiding differently, right? So we've all seen that where they, they hit the surprise, the company surprises, but then they revise downward. Well, that's the bad thing, right? So then you have to look at revisions. 
So again, if you have a company that surprises on the positive side, then guides higher, then you notice that the analysts are increasing their revisions. And what you also find is that this is a virtuous cycle that continues. And by the way, that's on the positive side. You also see that on the negative side, where somebody has a negative surprise and then that causes negative revisions. Again, you see that stock price historically continuing to go down for some period of time. Sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's two years or what have you. Okay, so let's step back from that. You're a microcap manager now. There are almost no analysts following these companies. Or those that are following it are, shall we say, shills. So they are leading the company around by the nose, trying to get notoriety, or they're making investment banking fees off them. So all of a sudden, uh, it's a universal buy recommendation, right? So, Or they're writing it up, and you don't know. You're taking it with a grain of salt, right? You appreciate the information, but you're not quite sure about that buy, hold, or sell is correct. But from a lot of these companies, there is no coverage whatsoever. So think about what we're doing here. When we think about these positive surprises and positive revisions or vice versa, you can see that in the stock's reaction, right? So hmm. when there's good news, you can see it in the momentum of the stock price itself. And that's why we've chosen in the micro cap to look at the, as opposed to the causation, what happened. So again, in micro cap, so there must have been some sort of good news that caused that stock price to go up, you know, whatever it might be. It might have been a good earnings report. It could have been increased sales. It doesn't really matter. What we notice is the momentum. And then when we look at the studies show that momentum actually is a very powerful factor for this very uh, unfollowed universe that's very inefficient. So that's why we use that, and that's sort of uh, what happens, and that's how companies become discovered, if you will. It becomes its performance does well, it reaches a certain market cap, or they have some certain product that has started to compete with some other company that the analyst is following, and all of a sudden you've got coverage. Mm -hmm. So hopefully you can get in there before they start picking up on it. Mm -hmm. And and just to, to follow up again on 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 that answer about momentum, you know, have you ever had a time when you're, you have one of your stocks in your portfolio, you see that it hits that momentum metric or, you know, you see that the stock is going up, but it wasn't, you don't see any news on the company. You know, can you ever get thrown off by the potential momentum in the stock? And I, I'm using air quotes. Um, <laughs> um, has that ever happened? I'm, you know, well, sure. Now, if that's the case uh, on our uh, on the fundamental side, on our other products, and we see the stock going up, and we're wondering what in the world is going on there, number one, uh, it could be that somebody's going to do a takeout on it, uh, and nobody has made an announcement in the market. But we would typically use that as an opportunity to either cut back on the position or sell it entirely if we felt like it was uh, above the PE on the fundamental side that we liked. Now, on the quantitative side here, you'll notice that when we see that happening, we have all sorts of things in our sell rules that if it's outperforming the benchmark by a certain amount, we'll either cut it back to its normal weight or if it's left the screen, we'll, we'll get rid of it entirely. 
So we have tried our best to get that kind of cell discipline that we have on the fundamental side and try to quantify that inside our rules so that we can, uh, it, at the very least, harvest some of those uh, ill-gotten gains that there's really no information there. I see. Okay. So it, um, my next question then is, um, and you touched on this again already when it comes to how you actually discover some of the companies for for the fund itself, um, and and you use this quote, uh, the discovery effect. Um, you know, how, how does the firm uncover undervalued businesses that are seemingly under the radar? You know, it. I, I think you'd ask any qualitative uh, investor, and they'd say, "Well, it's impossible to do that with just using quantitative metrics." But I have a feeling you might would would disagree with that, wouldn't you? Would you? Well, uh, again, we use it on both sides of the house, where we have we combine it with our fundamental. Uh, but I would say that it's hard to look in the face of history and not see that low PE or low price to book wins time after time after time. So uh, it's interesting. If you were to look in Morningstar's universe, let's say, and you were to look at small cap value and small cap growth, and you would look at the number of firms that there are, there's always more small cap growth guys. Always. There's always more of those guys. And yet, if you look at the performance, you will see over very long periods of time that small cap value not only beats small cap growth, but it does it at a lower risk. So it's a little hard to ignore that. The only thing that they have that we don't have on the value side is they always have a better story than we do, right? It's always the widget that's, oh, my God, it's going to take over the world. You are no longer going to have to buy that washing machine. We're going to be able to do it over the Internet. We will be able to put your clothes in the, you know, in the machine and it will you know, go off to some netherland and it will come back clean. You know, there's always those stories. And you know what? Those are the things that people want to talk about at parties and the like. And just the name growth. Doesn't that sound better than value? Of course it does. So, again, I think it's our job as a value guy. I mean, all that means is we're buying things cheap, right? Uh, that's it. There's nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> and I really do believe it's in your blood. Like for my myself, for example, if... You know, I've got a very nice shirt on right now. Having said that, I like to get my shirts at Nordstrom Rack or TJ Maxx. But I'm looking for the very high-quality shirts that are now on sale. That's the exact same thing. And we find when we hire analysts, that's that's we're sort of looking for that. So we'll ask them, do you ever buy a new car? The growth guys always say, sure. <laughs> but the value guys say, you know what? I like to wait for a couple years when it, you know, it's it's a little bit cheaper. I buy a low mileage, high quality car. Yes, that's the mindset. So again, it's again, and it's a little hard. We get sucked in as human beings on these growth stories, right? We read the story, we love the story, and we almost we don't care what we pay for that, right? We gotta have it. It's a little red Corvette, right? We, we got to have that high maintenance, high cost, low resale. But, hey, I want that as opposed to a value guy also looking for growth, even though it's not in our name. But we know that it's cheap. And so 
we're buying it cheap. We still are trying to buy companies that have good growth with them. And by the way, because we're buying it cheap, we also have some downside protection that typically the growth guys don't have. Mm-hmm. Hey, real quick, what what for those who may not know, what what is that downside risk that you have versus what a growth guy would have? Well, again, it, it has to do with the valuation levels. Uh, I like to. Uh, I never. <clears throat> did any ice skating when I was a young kid. And my wife convinced me to go out there. And I saw all these young kids, they were fearless, right? Because they were falling and it didn't mean anything to them. Well, I'm a little taller, I got further to fall, right? So again, it's the same thing with PEs. You have a high PE, you stub your toe, you have further to fall. But not so much on the risk side for a low PE stock, you typically can't fall as far because you're already cheap. The other thing that we tend to do from a risk profile is that we're looking for a higher um, return on equity. And in our portfolio, our uh, return on equity is relatively high versus the benchmark. It's uh, 11 is our ROE uh, versus the benchmark, which I think is in the single, single digits. That's very helpful. We also have lower leverage. But having said that, I would say that the entire universe of microcaps happens to have lower leverage. And you'd like to think that these companies are being uh, uh, cautious, but it just means that nobody will lend them any money, right? But in any event, we're looking for, uh, and we're also having a very well diversified portfolio. So again, those are all things that any of your audience could uh, do also looking for things that have good downside protection for us. We measure that and our uh, downside capture, I don't want to get too technical here, but is only 65%. So the market's going down. We're only going down 65% of that. And that has to do again with that valuation metric that we put in there. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing my, my background research on, uh, on Opus, um, I, I I went through the company's PowerPoint presentation, and one 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 of the slides that stuck out to me that I thought was kind of interesting, and I wanted to ask you um, your opinion on it to get uh, an even more uh, developed answer is, you know, why would you say that U.S. microcaps are an alternative to private equity? Well, uh, again, I think you have to make the leap that you want private equity or an alternative in your portfolio. Um, I I think that the jury's out on that. Quite a few institutional investors are getting out of alternatives. But let's just say that you want to go down that path. Mm -hmm. So, And as a former plan sponsor myself, uh, I have hired venture capital managers and real estate managers and the like. um, And also when people are trying to sell you the alts. Now, a couple things. Uh, a lot of times they don't want to tell you what is in their portfolio, right? And that actually tends to be appealing for, to people because there's some secret sauce, some, some recipe they won't tell you about, but based on the past, it sort of tastes good, right? Or they're, they're saying that, well, you know, we've bat tested this. It looks pretty good. So, so again, I think there's a lack of transparency, uh, which sometimes people find appealing. Uh, I don't find it appealing, but I I can see where you you would, the secret recipe that nobody will tell you about. Uh, The other thing that that it is, is in terms of the liquidity. 
So again, I would say that microcap, even though it has less liquidity than, say, small cap or mid cap or large cap, has a lot more liquidity than when you're being tied up for 10 years in some hedge fund or some real estate venture or what have you. So, and again, think about where we are. A lot of these companies that venture is investing in or some of the hedge fund managers are investing in, they're looking for companies that are just starting and that are going to explode in their growth, right? Well, that's the exact same thing that you're looking for in the microcap universe. And you have, like at your upcoming conference, I've seen companies that are coming in there that are $20 million in capitalization. I mean, that's pretty small. And that's great. That's exactly the kind of thing that venture would be interested in. Now, it would be late-stage venture. So these guys probably already have some sales, or hopefully they have some sales. The last thing that I would say is that if you actually have an interest in those things, number one, you have to have you have to belly up to the bar with a pretty good amount of money before somebody good is going to take you on. So, uh, again, I think that – and they're going to charge you a fortune, right? So it's always uh, – 2% and 20 on some hurdle rate. And then if that doesn't work, I'm going to close the fund and I'm going to start another one. But uh, I'm getting, you know, I'm digressing here. But in any event, I would say that in the microcap arena, number one, I guess a lot of the people attending the conference may be tempted to do it themselves uh, to buy a name. And I know a couple speakers that I'm on the panel with do that, uh, the Canadian guys that you've talked to in the past. Um, but if somebody as a retail person wanted to get exposure, there are various mutual funds that they could uh, invest in. Uh, they run the gamut. Uh, you can get some as cheap as 50 basis points, or you could spend as much as 2%, but at least you would get some diversified portfolio. And if you're going down the path of you want an alternative and you want it to be something like a venture where somebody is investing in companies at the very start of their life, then I think microcap is the way to go where you can get good diversification early on, hopefully, uh, at a relatively inexpensive price versus the two and 20. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, another thing I wanted to follow up on, and this has to do with your the, the firm's strategy of, of a combination of fundamentals with your quantitative um, approach. And some will see this as a silly question. I kind of like this question. Is is there ever a fear of missing out on uh, on one where like it may have had one thing about it that just didn't fit, and you're and the next thing you know, you see you're like, oh man, this thing this thing went to the moon. How do we miss that one? It had the one metric. You know, as a <laughs> as an investment advisor, you always think that. Like as a small cap guy. When large cap is going through the roof, we're missing out on all of those, right? We are. And But you have to stick to your knitting. You, you have to find the way that works for you. But yes, and I can't tell you how aggravating that is. We will go through, <laughs> and when we're doing our quantitative approach, and let's just say we start with 2200, and we're doing our screens, and we're coming up with this 250 to 300, and then we come across a company, we're thinking – that we read about or what have you, or we did a, a tear sheet on, and we're saying, why is that company not coming through? So we will move heaven and earth to figure out why in the world is this not passing the screen, and we'll go ahead and we'll figure out a way, and maybe the Russell people misclassified it, 
or they or something along those lines and then we will go we will move heaven and earth to try to get that in the initial universe and what i will tell you is even though we're very anal about it it probably doesn't make a bit of difference mm -hmm. because there are plenty of fish in the sea we just keep in mind we we're starting with 2200 companies so again if we didn't get that one maybe we got another one mm -hmm. so uh, yes, but are we anal about it? Do we fret about it? Well, of course we do. But <laughs> when we step back from it, does it really make any difference if you're sticking to your your knit? No, it really doesn't. It's especially if you sleep better at night, knowing that you're, you are very confident in your approach. It, you know, at, at that point, you're like, right. Uh, well, think about the think about the concentrated portfolio. And I just listened to your podcast with the Canadian guys. And, you know, like you ask them, where do you find your ideas? Well, we find them everywhere. And we do all these filings and we look at that and, and you know, they're trying to find six companies. I bet there are thousands of companies that they're not finding and they're mostly concentrating in, in Canada. I bet there's probably a couple hundred in the U.S. they'd like to. So there's always that opportunity cost. And where does it stop? At that point, you know, I bet there's some country, you know, there's some companies in another country that would probably look pretty good too. So again, I think that what you have to do is know your limitations, know your space really well, come up with a strategy. We have one strategy. There's many strategies that work. Come up with that one and stick to it because as soon as you start straying and you say, well, you know, I'm going to make an exception. I'm going to, I'm going to put that in there. And then it just, it doesn't stop. It's like that's the it's like that's the one that bites you. Um, <laughs> so, I, as another follow up, you know, at any point in in your in your cycle of uh, assessing companies, do do you talk with management? Do you ask the you know? Do you get them on the phone to say, hey, you know, this is this is Len from Opus. Uh, you know, you came up on our screen. I wanted to kind of talk with you about the company and where it's going. You know, what are the type? If if, if yes, you know, what are the types of questions that you ask them? Well, the answer is yes and no. Uh, yes, we do that on our flagship product and on our uh, small cap dividend product. So again, typically we are trying to explain, have, get an explanation for something that doesn't look right. So it, maybe their receivables have gone up for uh, no good reason, uh, or maybe there's some liability on the books that we don't quite understand, or it could be any number of things. It could be their outlook on growth. But let me just say this, and I'll circle back, because on the quantitative, quantitative side, we don't, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, you might say, uh, and I have to be a cynic here a little bit, because, number one, because of all the rules that are out there now, even if you ask management a question, unless you're on the conference call, um, they can't really give you any information because that would be insider information, right? So if I called somebody up on the phone and I asked them something about some new product that they were coming out with and it was going great guns and they hadn't disclosed that to others, that would be considered insider information. And I wouldn't be able to use it anyway, or I shouldn't be able to use it. So again, though, but getting back to the quantitative, so let's talk about the no side. A lot of times you get your best information by just looking at the facts. So that old dragnet show, Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, 
that really does work a lot of times. So I'm not going to name who it was, but I was working for a company and I worked directly with the CEO and uh, we had some write-offs at the end of every year for like two years in a row. And so I, I, uh, when he was walking by one day at the end of the next year, I said, okay, so when are we going to have that annual extraordinary event that we normally have? And that's the thing. You can see that in the ROE. All right. So when you have, again, when people only want to talk about their, uh, how they've been so good at their acquisitions. Well, if you want to ask the company about that, you can. But you can see the results by looking at their ROE on a time series basis. And when you see it go negative, what did they do? They had a write-off. So something that they bought previously or some division was written off. So you can see that quantitatively also. And, and I will just tell you that being the somewhat cynic that I am, and I've worked with senior management on quite a few other companies, um, they want to tell a good story. That's their job, right? They are not only the CEO, but they're the chief, chief cheerleader for their company. So again, uh, how many times have you seen that uh, the companies, as opposed to saying that we had an average return, solid, right? Whenever I read, hear the word <laughs> solid, I, I'm thinking, well, that was bad. I better look into that because it was just solid. It wasn't great. It wasn't wonderful. It wasn't good. It was solid. How about <clears> chill? <throat> have, have you ever gotten chill? It was chill. No, I'm just kidding. We, we haven't gotten that one, but if they thought it would work, I'm sure they would use it. So again, what, what I'm saying is that, yes, we talk to management, but we have to take it with a grain of salt. And when we do talk to management, it's typically about a specific issue that we know they can answer. Because if you're trying to get out of them what the growth prospects are, keep in mind they're a cheerleader and you're better, look, you're better off looking at what their pattern of sales growth has been, what their profitability ratios have been, their write-offs and the like. So again, uh, we feel like we capture that in the quantitative side also by looking at that. And that's one of the things that uh, that is part of the screen inside the quantitative. Mm -hmm. It would be so nice if you could ask them a question and they would tell you, yes, my stock is going up 30% in the next six months and you could actually believe that. <laughs> so what, what, what would you say is the fundamental difference between your investing philosophy and say some other funds focused on micro cap stocks, even ones that may have a similar approach with this combination of quantitative and fundamentals? Well, we've, you know, there's lots of people out there doing both. There are people who are doing only fundamental and then there are people who are doing uh, quantitative similar to what we're doing. But I would say the big difference for us is that we have been involved in this quant side on the screen side for literally going on 30 years now, which was started at Cincinnati Bell. And uh, then when we started up Opus, again, we have constantly been revisiting that and we change it all the time based on new data. So again, what the quantitative screen was 20 years ago is different now because we see that different characteristics affect different industries. Uh, right now, I would say that 
uh, we have an interest in shorts. The, the common wisdom out there is that a high short interest uh, always wins, right? So the, there's going to be the short squeeze, and you're going to make a fortune. Uh, we haven't really found that to be the case. So what we're, we've been doing is we've been moving that into our quantitative screens also. So I would guess that, uh, again, keep in mind that a lot of these quantitative approaches are somewhat uh, late to the game. It's the indexing that is ubiquitous now, the, uh, the factor analysis that you're seeing. All of those have come about over the, next, over the last 10 years or so. We've had anecdotal, anecdotal evidence on our screens for going on 30 years now. <clears throat> so again, I think we've got a better handle on it, both on what's worked and what hasn't done. And when we think we see anecdotal evidence of something working or not working, then we go back and we try to figure out whether is that true or not, or are we just crazy? We're just, we saw a couple things that it, yes, it worked on that one, but not on the majority of it. So we're constantly redoing it. And I think that we've been doing it for a little bit longer than most people. Mm -hmm. So, what 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 is your advice for new microcap investors? You know, what what are some things that you would recommend someone brand new to microcaps to look out for, or maybe some first steps when when looking to invest in in this uh, uh, asset class? Well, I'm going to have to turn it around on you because when you say a new investor. Are you talking about a new large institutional investor or a small institutional investor or a retail person who wants to do it themselves or a retail person who wants to buy a mutual fund? Which, Because oh. those are all different answers. Oh, we can. Let's do all the above. I got time. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you were a large institutional investor, I would say you, you can't do it uh, because they have so much money to put to work that you'd have to hire managers to do it and you would take up all their capacity. And eventually what would happen is that you would become the market and you wouldn't be outperforming the market. So for someone like that, if they put in money in maybe an index fund in the small cap arena, but even at that, they could not, they would start moving the market. So for them, it just isn't, and it's not going to move the needle either. So if you've got a hundred billion, okay, am I really going to be putting a billion in there? And even if I did, it's one percent of my portfolio, so it doesn't move the needle for me. For a smaller institution, uh, they would be able to do that. So they would be able to hire a couple managers. Maybe they do a value and a growth, and, and they they could do that. If I were in their shoes, and I was in their shoes. I would be more interested in the process and I would be interested in the risk profile because returns you can't forecast, but it does seem like the risk profile stays the same if a manager keeps his same process. So I know that when I would go in front of the board and the market was down a lot, 25%, it always was a lot better if I said, you know, we're only down 15. <laughs> that worked really, really well and you would get cut a break if it was up 30 and you're only up 25, well, we're up 25. That's pretty good. So it's always on the downside. So as a plan sponsor myself, and I'm a smaller institution, then I think I'm looking for the process, and I'm actually looking for downside protection a little bit, and I'm looking for a process that makes some sense. And I would look at the risk profile and the like. Now, regarding a retail person who doesn't have a lot of time, right? So they, they're they interested, but 
they do not have time to do looking at individual issues. Uh, and I'm hoping they don't think they can just read the paper and read one name and put their entire IRA in it because that would be horrible. So for someone like that, I would say that they should look for a mutual fund. Uh, these, these fees are really expensive. But if you're serious about looking at a microcap fund, I would suggest that they go to Morningstar or something like that and do a, and let Morningstar do the work for them. But I think the most important thing that I saw when I was looking through microcap funds is that they really weren't microcap funds. So keep in mind that the index itself is about a 500 million average market cap. So a lot of the funds that have the word micro in their portfolio just do a real quick, uh, quick simple O. Oh, they say they're micro, but their market cap is a billion and a half or two billion. Okay, well, that's small. That's not micro. So, and that makes a big difference because the Fama and French studies that show that smaller capitalization stocks work and that Laconishot studies and all of those studies, they're talking about the two lowest decile of the stock universe. That's the microcap universe. So if I'm a retail person and I want to get exposure to microcap and I need to do it through a mutual fund, then I would say that just look at the capitalization, number one, to make sure that you're actually getting a microcap fund. Now, let's go on to the last person who thinks that they're going to buy some individual stocks. Well, number one, there are people, very smart people who spend their entire day doing nothing but that, and you're competing against them. That's really hard to do. They have a lot of resources, like we have a lot of resources at our disposal. We have FactSet. We have all sorts of things uh, at our disposal that a normal person doesn't have. So if I'm in their shoes, but it's fun, right? They have a passion for it. They're going to come to your conference. They're going to be listening to those stories. That's great. And they're going to be trying to figure out which ones are the next uh, Microsoft and the like. Awesome. I would tell them that they should take a certain small percentage of their portfolio, treat it as bad money, and then please track it. Because what we find is that, number one, that when they track their performance versus some benchmark, they end up losing. Okay. So, again, what happens is that you have maybe one or two that are really well and the, some other ones that aren't doing so well. So I would just advise them, if you want to do this, it's a Herculean task because there is no information available for the most part. And secondly, just for your own sanity, keep track of your performance versus some benchmark just to see how you're doing. Just I know it's fun, but it's real money and it's your nest egg. So let's make sure that you're taking care of it. So with that, we're, um, well, firstly, um, we're very excited because uh, you're going to be speaking on one of our, our panels at the Planet Microcap Showcase, uh, April 26th through 28th, on the Institutional Investing Panel with Ralph Garcia and Bill Naskovitz from Heartland Advisors. So um, I, I wanted to... I wanted to give everybody a little taste of what I mean. They got they definitely got a good amount, you know, in in this interview of what they can expect to hear from you on this panel. But what would you say is the the core message you would like to um, put out there for this panel uh, that everybody can expect to to hear at the conference? 
Well, number one, I would come in not saying that our methodology is the best. I would say that all three of the people on the panel are going to have their way of doing it and they can all work. So there's no one way to do it. We have a quantitative approach. I would say that the uh, Heartland guys have a more, they would do initial screening and then they would have a lot more fundamental. They've got their uh, 10 rules of investing and all, all of that good stuff. And the other gentlemen from Canada are buying individual stocks and you know a very concentrated portfolio. My first thought would be we can all win, but we have to stick to our knitting. And again, for us, the only thing that we're going to say is that the way we do it is it's a combination for us. It's very simple. All of our products are like this. It's a combination of low valuation, high quality, and growth. And our portfolio meets in the center of that. And that is our portfolio. So it's, it's just pretty easy. And let's not forget downside protection while we're at it. <laughs> that, that, it always got to assess downside risk, no matter in, in whatever you do. Just like you always want to have, whenever you buy something, you want to make sure that there's a, you're getting the value that you perceive that you want. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so with that, Len, um, where should my audience go and find more information about you and Opus Capital Management? Uh, our website is uh, www.opusinc.com. All right. And are you guys on social media or uh, is there a Twitter handle that people should go and follow? <clears throat> I'm sure Mike knows all about that. Uh, <laughs> Mike, chime in I, here. <laughs> yeah, if I may chime in, yeah. Uh, we're on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, Facebook also. Um, just search Opus Capital Management, and you'll find us on the beautiful skyline of Cincinnati for those that haven't traveled to the city. Uh, we'd love to have you. But we're out there on our social media channels. We contribute to Value Walk. Um, we've got a... Portfolio manager going to begin contributing to Seeking Alpha also. So search us and we're there. Give us a call, 513-621-6787. Um, we're all accessible and happy to talk to anybody who's interested. And that that was, marketing message was brought to you by Mike Napke. You stole what I was about to introduce. That's too funny. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. And Len, uh, we'll see you in a couple weeks. Great. Looking forward to it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Len, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. Have a great week, everyone, and happy Easter. Happy Easter.